0: Hello, and welcome to today's segment of The Rebound, what Agco got right about COVID. I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Ashkenazi. And joining us today is Greg Tornman. Greg is Vice President of Global Materials, Logistics, and Demand Planning for Agco, one of the world's leading manufacturers of agricultural equipment. Now, anybody looking for a manufacturer that figured out how to navigate its way through the COVID pandemic need look no further than Agco. With an early detection system in place to highlight potential supply chain disruptions, Agco was able to keep production rolling, even with suppliers in hard hit areas in China and Italy. And with that, I'm gonna let Abe get us started.
1: Thanks, Bob. Um, Greg, um, Bob gave us a little bit of insight into Echo. Why don't you give us a little bit more? Tell us about who Echo is, some of the you know territories and products that you service, and a little bit more so for our listeners.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a common question I get at most conferences when I'm speaking, and I always ask the audience who knows about Echo. And most people do not, but they knew our brands. So I'll give a little bit of a, of a background about Agco. We were born in 1990. We were grown through acquisition, and along the way, we've acquired 54 companies in the last almost 30 years. In 2019, we had $9 billion in U.S. sales and we we're the third largest agriculture manufacturer on the planet. We are the largest agriculture only producer. We have around 20,000 employees and why most people in the U.S. or North America may not know about Agco is 77% of our business is outside the U.S. So we have five main brands, Massey Ferguson, which most people in the U.S. would recognize, Challenger, which is is, is, uh, sold through the Caterpillar Distribution Network, Valtra, which is a Scandinavian and Brazilian brand, Fent, which is what we consider the the top-of-the-line tractor in terms of innovation technology in the world, and GSI. GSI is our grains and storage business unit. And with that, you may think of brain silos or protein feeding systems that you'd see out in the countryside. Aggregately, we have 41 manufacturing facilities across the globe and 37 distribution centers supporting our clients across the globe with their aftermarkets. Supporting us is about 3,150 direct material suppliers. And we're currently going through our what we call our third leadership transition. And when I say third, our, our first leadership, the starting founders of our company, Bob Ratliff and company, they, they started the company and focused on top line growth. Um, in came Martin Rickenhagen as our second CEO, focused on functional excellence and how is it that we start to drive bottom line margin. We're now entering our third leadership, Eric Ansotia coming in. And within that organizational optimization is at the forefront of what we're trying to do. And each three of these leadership sessions have enabled Agco to continue to build upon in a sustainable manner of growing our business. Greg, thanks for that. Uh, I'm going to step in
0: here for a second. Uh, You know, we published in uh, Supply Chain Management Review uh, an article uh, about some of the things you did at Agco. And before we talk about uh, actual COVID, I know that risk management is something that you folks take pretty seriously and that one of the things you do, and I think it played a role in uh, your response to COVID, were these weekly supply side calls. Uh, I guess you've been doing them for about eight years. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. This goes back to about 2012 when we were putting together what we call our global materials management transformation strategy. And with that, all four of our regions uh, came together and you know did a where we're we at today, where do you want to be in five years when, we, when we're going to be great? And along that path, there were a whole bunch of different work streams. And the way to keep work streams rolling forward is through solid communication together with the strong program management. One of the, the elements that we utilized was these weekly supply calls where all four regions would be sharing status on the work streams that they're leading and driving, Secondly, how their supply and demand streams are looking. And thirdly, where are the potential hot buttons that we need to be on the lookout for? As part of that, risk management was an area that we said we need to expand upon in a a pretty aggressive manner. Why? Because within supply chain, time is one of the most critical resources that you can have. And by identifying risk early on, or ideally potential risk before they happen, enables you as a team to work time more effectively than uh, when someone calls you and tells you that, hey, you've got a supplier problem here, something happened two weeks ago. And with that, we've developed together with a partner of ours by the name of Risk Methods, very aggressive risk management policy and process that maps all of our suppliers, you know, looking at Typical financial status. How are they doing? Where risks are, but maybe more importantly, it it grabs that social media content that's out there on the web or, or different uh, ways and brings that to us in the form of alerts. That could be, you know, things like, oh, there's a whole bunch of uh, people concerned about something happening in in Wuhan. A few weeks later, you get so, some more verbs about it. What we were able to do with that was hear about what was happening in China in, uh, let's call it late December, that grew to, uh, let's call it a global discussion point in about mid-January. And at that point in time, we said, ladies and gentlemen, we think we have a a challenge here that's going to be quite large and we need to be taking immediate action. So our risk management policy and, and practices enabled us to identify this within China in December and then bring it to the global, the global group in uh, mid-January bit later mid the third week of January.
1: Greg, give me a little bit more information. Uh, we get, as supply chain professionals, data almost on a continual basis. How did you discern what was the appropriate data signals that were, you know, driving you to action? and more importantly who was involved in the you know the evaluation of the information one of the things that we often hear about from companies is that having supply chain professionals with real world experience and the ability to understand the problem before they apply a solution is a critical aspect of you know an effective supply chain so who was involved in your you know the evaluation process and then how much did you communicate out after that so this was internal communications how much did you involve your vendors uh, give me a sense of, you know, how you, you know, tackle that, uh, you know, sort of challenge. Sure. So the, the way it typically works
2: is when the, the initial alerts, right, we'll call it, come up, they're assessed by the local folks on the ground. So in this particular case, it was one of our purchasing team members who received the alert on one of his suppliers in the Wuhan area that there was something going on. So, he you know, he, he digests a little bit. And then he communicated up to his boss. Later on into December, as things started to get more, uh, let's call it uh, a lot more media content. Um, he, the boss, escalated up to the, the purchasing director for the region, which then brought the content to the January meeting, in the middle of january At about the same time as we do each year, we're getting ready to ramp down the China supply chain because of Chinese New Year and Spring Festival which typically for us is about a four-week period, two weeks of shutdown and two weeks of re that has a structured set of activities that happen. The, the individuals brought this to the call a global team's attention in the middle of January. The question was asked, what impact will this have on the restart? And immediately the question started to happen within China. And about two days later, on or about, I think it was the 17th to the, the 21st, We got some really clear insight that lockdowns were going to be coming, that the expected restart was going to have this, that, and the other type of uh, government regulations or or requirements in order to restart. And we asked the question, what does that mean to us and to our supply base? And one of the very first things that came up was the, the PPE, personal protective equipment. And so when we started to basically understand what our suppliers readiness would be when they would be able to restart, the answer was pretty, uh, we have a problem here, Houston, we need to act. And the following day, the call for support went out to the North America, South American, and European regions who immediately started to aggregate PPE for, uh, for the, what at the time was potential need in China. Fast forward, I think, three or four days later on the ground in China, shutdown is announced. Uh, February 10th, as far as a restart date, is what they were planning to have. From there, the restrictions on restarts would be defined at a time when many people were coming back from Chinese New Year migration, which, is, as most people know or many people know, is, is a huge migration of people back home and then back to the working areas. Um, we said, wow, that's going to be quite, uh, quite challenging. Greg, uh, this is Bob Triplecox. So one of the things um, in
0: terms of amassing, you know, PPE, for instance, I, I think I understood that you amassed uh, PPP in Chicago, um, created up with, uh, came up with critical components and alternative logistics plans. How did you adapt to the new restrictions
2: in China when production resumed? So we didn't react when production resumed, Bob. It was it was weeks before. It was how will we restart? What do we need to have for our team members? So, you know, our team members in, in China were relaying information to us and the rest of the world was taking action to support a successful restart. From there, once we understood what our restart would look like based on the February 10th, you know, restart authorization, from there the level of people that we would have the industrial output that we would be able to attend over the following, call it uh, four weeks. So our initial plan was that we would start at 10 to 15% in that first week in February 10th, and then by early March to mid-March, be back up to 100%. At that point in time, we were able to do supply versus demand simulations and determine where our critical factors were. We immediately started to you know change our sourcing splits where I may buy, tw- you know, in China and 50% in Italy, I shifted it to 100% Italy and China demand got pulled out or pushed out a few more weeks, right? Other cases, we would be insourcing product uh, that was produced, say metal fabrication in China. We produced it in our factories in Brazil and sent it to Italy. Um, Other cases where we had sites that were sharing inventory based on criticality and, you know, expected runout dates and resupply. So, We immediately went into effect to solve the supply versus demand challenges in late January based on a restart plan that we had put together with our team based on the China government regulations and restrictions and how they envisioned the return to work would be.
1: One of the things that you've highlighted here is visibility, and you know that you're able to make the necessary adjustments across the globe with your various manufacturing and support uh, nodes. Uh, Give me a sense, give the listeners a sense about your risk notification and your visualization. Uh, How important was it before, and how critical is it now, and what have you done differently now to get visibility across the enterprise? So
2: very, very, very good question. Right, kind of the, the basis of a global supply chain these days. So in 2012, as I mentioned earlier, we put together our strategy. There were a number of, of call it uh, work streams, as mentioned. One of those was standardization. The second was tools. So we have a global uh, transportation management system that is the same operating condition across the globe, the only difference is, is is when you sign in, if you're in China, you'll see it in Mandarin. And if you're in, in France, you'll see it in French. That's pretty much the only variability that we have. With that, it enables us to see what's actually shipping from a supplier in China, in Wuhan, to one of our distribution facilities, say in Guangzhou or up in uh, Shanghai area, wherever it may be, and start to sense what should be what is shipping versus what is actually shipping. We pretty much already knew that nothing was shipping because the uh, the government restrictions. But as we then move forward, we were able to see relatively quickly as shipments started to move to port, were those were those shipments actually getting onto ships, right, and then making their way across, and how much time was the shipping actually going to take versus the, the, the targeted transit days? We took decisions to move product by train because we did not see that things were moving fast enough through the, the ports in Shanghai. And as a result, we paid some higher costs, but significantly would have paid an air freight. So the visibility to where the potential challenges would be in terms of transportation that is bringing supply enabled us then to pretty quickly take alternate decisions based on scenario A happening, scenario B happening, scenario C happening, and subsequently save more time because we're not recalculating what do we do next since plan A failed, right? Which really comes down to our playbook and having the backup scenario of if I do have a challenge, how do I mitigate that?
0: Greg, one of the things that I find um, interesting about the story, when you were talking about alternative sources of supply from uh, China, you were moving them to Italy and Brazil, which you know subsequently became too very hard hit areas. Uh, what did you learn from China and how did you apply those lessons to uh, Italy and Brazil and maybe any other place where you have operations as the pandemic moved globally?
2: So when when we started talking in, in the end of January and as, as the kind of supply and demand from China itself started to become a little bit more clear, we said we asked the question, "What's next? Where is this going?" And at that time, our risk management thing was picking up the social media in Japan and in Korea. So what we did is we took our risk our risk management functionality and overlaid that with case counts per postal code or zip code, it enabled us to see with surgical accuracy the the case counts relative to where our supplies were producing. And subsequently, we had very good results in Japan and Korea that enabled us to pull things out two to three days before we would have if we if we weren't investigating it, right? And two or three days is a lot when you when the alternative is zero days. We took that same methodology then to Italy and were able to pull things out seven to ten working days before the government restrictions came into play, which would enable us to have a much more working efficient. That worked so well that we then moved it to North America and to South America, and, and where we continue to use this today because this is not over. We still have very active activities in South America, uh, particularly Brazil. And on a weekly basis, we are looking at case counts, taking decisions, uh, particularly in the Sao Paulo area. Why? Because we need to. And we will continue to monitor this until we believe that uh, it's no longer an inactive.
1: Greg, one last question. Uh, extraordinary work and a very uh, committed uh, response to this. Give me a sense of your talent development. How important was that coming into, the, you know, into this uh, disruption? And then more importantly, how critical is it coming out of this disruption?
2: Again, I got to go back to 2012 when we said, you know, where are we going? We also asked the question of, do we have the right talent to utilize this, this new way to work? And along the path, we've had a a very large number of successful implementations that have been viewed as, you know, let's call it um, very good, right? We've won a number of awards, been up for a number of other awards. That in itself draws talent. That in itself retains talent. Why? Because people like to be associated with success. And a lot of the big buzzwords these days are in digitalization. So, if you have the ability to offer an employee or potential employee working in a, in a very highly recognized, highly successful organization when it comes to state of the art supply chain tools and digitalization, people get excited. When you have people that are excited about what they do and who they work for, they go the extra mile when they're called upon. And we've seen that like no one could ever have imagined over the last 16 weeks is this thing has been been really rolling for us and we are are fully convinced that the talent that we have the people that we have are the difference in our success factor in dealing with this covid-19 right and how they were able to take care of their brothers and sisters across the the pond and across the globe because they are customers of theirs as they are suppliers and that's part of what we consider the, the the family effect and so we, when you when you step back and, and look at that and say we've got very talented individuals we've got very passionate employees we've got the greatest tools that there are to offer right now on the planet in this area we, are we going to be able to execute and the answer that we've that we've you know for ourselves has been we with the result of our team's effort and dedication have been successful and able to support our sites and support our customer expectations through this better than what our competitors have been able to do. That in itself then drives more pride and more excitement about, okay, well, what are we going to do next? How do we stay ahead? And when you've got people that are saying, I'm willing to do change, I'm willing to do something different, I'm willing to do whatever because I want to get better, talent evolves. Talent comes to you. And talent, in many cases, comes out of the word work that you didn't even know you had.
1: Great story. Uh, Bob, why don't you take us home?
0: Right. Thank you, Greg. It really is a great story. And it's really, I think, pretty remarkable. One, just how uh, Agco got ahead of this at a time when you know the pandemic wasn't on most people's radars. So really great job. And uh, I know that your whole team is proud of what you've accomplished, and rightfully so. Uh, That's all the time we have today. I wanna thank everyone for joining and we hope you'll be back for our next episode, What We Learned From the Recession. Now in that episode, uh, Texas Christian University Professor Morgan Swink is gonna share the results of his research for ASCM. We look forward to seeing you then. I'm Bob Troublecock.
1: And I'm Ava Kanazie. Thank you all. Thanks everyone.
0: The Rebound is a joint production